This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. This time on the Out of Water podcast, we're bringing you part of a message from Pastor Sam Kastensmith in his series, The Miracle Behind the Miracles. In this episode, Sam will continue leading us through the miracles involved in the lives of Moses and the Israelites. After the thrilling victory when God parted the Red Sea and destroyed the army of Pharaoh, he leads his people into a barren wilderness where he will miraculously provide for them. How do these stunning and somewhat bizarre miracles point us to our Savior? Let's find out. We'll go now to the Ingram Center Theater at Rio Vista Community Church and Pastor Sam Kastensmith. So let me tell you, in Egypt, if you understood their mythology and all of the ten plagues are designed, all these miracles are designed to tear down the Egyptian pantheon of gods. Every single one of them just tears down different gods. And the first one starts with the god Osiris. He's a big name in Egyptian mythology. Osiris was the god of the afterlife. He was the god that when you went through the hall of judgment that's recorded in the book of the dead, after you went through all of your little rituals and you recited all your stuff, if you're an Egyptian, you believe that eventually you get to stand before Osiris and he holds your eternal fate. And here's the deal. In Egypt, they believed that the Nile River was the bloodstream of Osiris. And so I want you to imagine for a moment, if you're an Egyptian, and here comes this pesky, you know, Israelite god Yahweh. Well, he woke up Osiris. Look, the Nile River, it really is becoming blood. They're all getting excited. One of our mighty gods is rising up. And then in a matter of days, what begins to happen? that blood begins to coagulate and everything in it begins to die. Now what do the Egyptians think? My hope of an afterlife. If the God of afterlife is dead, my hope is dead. I have no afterlife. You get to the ninth plague. So let's take the three biggest Egyptian gods. You get to the ninth plague and that one's on Ra. It's probably the most famous of all the Egyptian gods, the god of the sun. And so here, God in the ninth plague blots out the sun for three days. Hmm. God, here's their god, dead for three days. Then you get to the last one. The last god standing is Pharaoh himself. They believed that Pharaoh was a god. And hear this. In order for God's people to go free, Egypt's god loses his firstborn son. All of these plagues are anticipating the gospel. And God, by the way, will take these plagues on himself. It'll be our God that pours out his blood to bring life. It'll be our God that's dead for three days. It'll be our God who has to give his firstborn son. Our God becomes the lamb that's slain, whose blood takes away the sins of the world. So Abraham lives 400 plus years before Moses. And God gives him this really bizarre promise. When you get to Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and says, I am going to bless you by giving you descendants as numerous as the stars. Look up, Abraham. That'll be the number of your descendants. And Abraham, it says Abraham believed God. 
And God gave him salvation by faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. But Abraham has this question, how do I know this is going to happen? And so God has him do something that's really bizarre. And you're going to be like, what? He says, I want you to take these animals, and he lists a number of animals, a heifer and this, that, and the other, and I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to take their bloodied, mangled carcass, and I want you to put half of the animal over here, and I want you to put half of the animal over here. You're basically making this path. And then you're thinking, what in the world? Well, here's the, here's the deal. In the ancient world, this is how you enter into a covenant. So if you notice, if you go to Jeremiah 34, 18 and 19, it'll refer to a covenant like this. He says, my people who walked between the carcasses have gone back on their word, right? So here, he's setting up saying, I'm about to make a promise. And the idea of the promise is, if I walk between these carcasses, what I'm saying is, if I fail to keep my word, may I be like these animals, slain, dead, destroyed, killed. And so then, Abraham goes into this deep, deep, dark sleep, and then he sees, he gets this sight. It's really bizarre. And it says that he sees a flaming torch and a smoking oven going between the carcasses. You're like, that's really weird. And then God offers this promise. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot, there it is, And a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. See, the promise that was given to Abraham is, Through your descendants, I'm going to bless the world. All nations on the surface of the earth are going to be blessed through your offspring. Well, who's going to be his offspring? The line of Christ, absolutely. All nations on earth are going to be blessed through that offspring. And here's what God does. So you know that it's going to happen. Here's what I'm willing to do. You look at that flaming torch and the smoking pot going between the carcasses. Well, who is that? What is that? It's going to be answered a little bit more than four centuries later when God delivers the nation of Israel. When he leads them through the Red Sea, he leads them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like a flaming torch and a smoking oven. These two pillars that go ahead of the nation of Israel. And the Red Sea parts, hang with me, the Red Sea parts, here we go again, and all of God's people are now walking through this parted sea. He's going to take them to Mount Sinai, and he's going to give them the law. And this is what changes. The first covenant that God makes with Abraham, he's saying, no matter what you do, I'm on the hook. I'm the one who walked between the dead carcasses. I promise to you that I will be with you, that I will bless the nations through your seed, that I'm going to do this no matter how bad, rotten, miserable you are. I'm going to do this. But now, God and his people are walking through the Red Sea. He gets right on the other side of the Red Sea. He goes up on Mount Sinai and he gives them a covenant, the law. And now all of a sudden, the covenant changes. It's if you do this, then I will do my part. And you're going, "Uh uh-oh. And I mean, by the time Moses comes down from the mountain, they've blown it. They're worshiping idols, and we, we stink. We're terrible. 
But now we've got this conflicting picture, right? And oh, by the way, when God leads them out of Egypt, this is just cool. God is just such a cool sovereign poet. When God leads them out of Egypt, he deliberately turns them around, takes them opposite the Red Sea from a place called Baal Zephon. Baal Zephon is what the Canaanites believed about their creation myth. And so in the 1920s, we found these tablets that tell us what the Canaanites believed in their mythology. And this is what it tells us, that the god Baal defeated the serpentine god Yom, which, by the way, is the same word for the Hebrew word for sea. And this is what they believed about their creation story. The club swoops from the hand of Baal like an eagle from his fingers, and it strikes the head of Prince Yom, who, by the way, was serpentine. Echo there, right? Between the eyes of Judge River and Yom sinks, falls to the earth, his joints fail, his frame collapses, and Baal drags and poises Yom. And the idea is he is going to the sea god, smashes him on the head, rips his body apart, and makes the land out of his body. And God goes, oh no, 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 no. He takes them to Baal Zephon and he says, let me show you who the true creator is. The Canaanites believe that Yom was a creature. The sea was a creature. And what does God do? Whoosh! Slices it in half. And so, the picture, he's mocking the Canaanite religion, right? And then he and his people walk between the parted carcass. Wow. So that makes sense when you read crazy things in the Psalms like this, where it says, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. No, the psalmist isn't saying they're sea monsters. They're making fun of the Canaanite myths. He is the God who shows mastery over the sea. And then he takes them in a bilateral covenant. And here's the problem. We failed. And God cannot dwell with us. Why? Because we've become sinful, nasty, self-centered, arrogant, hate-filled, all these things, and God's holiness will not dwell with that. And so now he's on the hook. He's got this really big problem. He has already said, at the risk of pledging my own life, I will give my life as an assurance of this promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless the nations through your seed. Then he comes over here and it's a bilateral covenant and we've messed up. How does God reconcile it? 1,500 years after Moses, the God who showed Abraham that vision, the God who led Moses and the Israelites through the parted sea is going to hang between carcasses. Why? Because he promised Abraham what? That no matter what, I am going to make good on my promise. But then over here with Moses... He says, I will only dwell with you if you are perfectly righteous. Problem. And so he hangs between two carcasses. Why? As a proof that he kept his word to Abraham. But far more than that, he has taken his perfect righteousness, who has kept the law of Moses absolutely, perfectly, never failing, he takes all our filth, all our mess, all our sin, and he is cloaked with it. And he clothes you in utter perfection. And now both covenants are beautiful. And he has paid it all. 
It is by the blood of the Lamb that you have been washed totally clean. All these miracles, the Red Sea crossing, the, the, the Nile, and all, all of it is screaming, oh, you don't know the love of God. You don't know how beautiful this is. And if you come to him asking, though, well, how could that happen? Or what? what? You miss it. The why lifts up this unbelievably beautiful story, right? This unbelievable love of God. This, this incredible, beautiful poetry. And now I see the why makes all the other questions obsolete. Doesn't it? Now I can get why an omnipotent God who's all-powerful would do that. It's not just some kooky parlor trick. He's preaching the gospel. He is declaring his love over us. So they cross the Red Sea, and we get to the story of the waters of Merah. So this is out in the middle of the wilderness. They're in the Sinai Peninsula. There's no life there. It's all dead. You go there today, it's just desert, sand everywhere. And they're walking for three days, and this is what the scriptures tell us. This is just so beautiful. If you read this without the why, it sounds utterly foolish, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, you're walking through the wilderness. I want you to feel the desperation of that. Like, just reading that makes me thirsty, and I'm tempted to need to go get a drink. Like, I'm very impressionable. Somebody in here tells me they're having chest pains. I'll have them right with you. (laughs) Like, and don't even mention lice, because let's see who scratches first. Yeah, there we go. Very impressive. So anyway, like three days without water, this is for real serious. This is health. And so here's the problem. You're three days in, which means what? It's three days back. You're done. There's no, hey, I've, I've come this way. You know what? I'm, I'm going back. to You're done. And so this is what they found no water. And now when they came to, to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah for they were bitter. Merah literally means bitter in Hebrew. Therefore, the name of it was called Merah, and the people complained against Moses, which they do nonstop in these writings, which, by the way, we do nonstop. And they asked, what shall we drink? And so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he cast it into the waters, and the waters were made sweet, and there's the story. Why? Like, I can't tell you how. You know, people always want to say, oh, there must have been some kind of charcoal chemical in the tree that interacted with the properties. No, it doesn't make sense. It's foolish. Unless there's a why behind it. What's the why? God has his people in a position where they're in a land of death. There's no hope. And so what happens? In the middle of this land of death, there's one sign of life. God showed them a tree. Moses has to go to the tree, the one sign of life after three days, and a sentence of death otherwise. And Moses will cut down the one living thing in a land of death. He will take the tree and he will cast it into the waters. Last week, what did we already determine waters represent? Death. He cuts the tree down, the one sign of life, and he throws it into death and judgment. And what happens for everyone else? Life. And not just, not just, ah, the waters became bearable. Sweet waters. 
gospel here, right? This is what the, the prophets wrote about when Isaiah talked about, there shall come forth from the shoot of the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots, and they shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon them. This is one of the most famous utterances about the Messiah. And it said, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's talking about our Messiah. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. What's Isaiah saying? In a land where there is no life, no hope of life, everything is barren, it's dry ground, our Messiah will emerge from the dry ground as a shoot, and he's going to be cut down. Why? So that you have life. Every single one of these miracles is screaming gospel. And the why, like I said, the why makes the what and the how and the who and when makes them all obsolete. Because now you see the heart behind all of these that God is doing. Manna. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What is, what is he getting at? Like this, Because this is intended to remind us of something. If you think through your Old Testament. Here you have all of Israel. There's only one time. And, and I'm, I'm uncomfortable even mentioning this story. Because it's just like, oh, I, wish, I don't know what to do with that. But there's one time in scripture where God says that he hated a person. Do you know who that is? Esau. Right? God loved Jacob. He hated Esau. Why did he hate Esau? You read through the book of Genesis, and he seems like, a, like an ordinary man's man. He does all these things. He's, he's, pretty, he's a pretty good dude, seemingly. But one day he comes in from the field. He's got all the promises that were given to Abraham that God is saying, you don't understand the extravagance of which I'm going to to carry out all these promises. You don't understand the love that's behind these promises. You don't understand what I'm going to do with you. And Esau comes in from the field, and Jacob, his younger brother, who's not supposed to be receiving the blessing or the birthright, wants it desperately. And so Esau comes in, he's hungry, and he says, I'll sell you the whole thing for a taste of your lentil stew. I will take every bit of God's value, all of his promises, everything that he is, everything that he offers, and I'll trade it all. For just a taste of stew. Man, it's like standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus and going, eh, I'll take a bite of stew. And so here you have the hand of Israel, the, the people of Israel, who have come out of the Red Sea, who are the recipients of all these promises and wonders of God, and they, are, they stand to inherit it all. And what are they saying? Oh, we wish we were back in Egypt around pots of meat. What's that sound like? It's like, you don't, you don't want to be in those shoes. But we all, in some sense, I'm just going to throw this out there. In some sense, we all do that, right? There are times when I look at my walk as a Christian, and I go, man, this is hard. I, I kind of want to go back to Egypt. I kind of want to go back to where I could just, you know, serve my appetite and whatever I wanted in the moment, right? 
God's saying, don't, hang on. Wait and see what good thing I'm going to do. And so anyway, they all want to go back to Egypt and sit around pots of meat and eat. And they accuse God, you've brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the evening quail came up. Here's the goodness of God. You complain, you complain, you complain, you complain. He's still gracious and tender. Quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay all around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Do you know how you say what is it in Hebrew? Mana, which is where we get the name. Manna, mana. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. And there's a reason why it tells you that. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So think back to the waters that were bitter. You throw the tree in. God doesn't just make it clean. He makes it sweet. And so here, God doesn't just say, all right, here's some slop. Here, you know, here, just deal with this. This is, this, this is probably edible. You know, he gives them this food that tastes like honey, and Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer, it's a jar, let's just imagine it's a jar, of it to be kept throughout all generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout all generations. What's the problem with that? You've just seen what happens to the manna every day. It rots. And yet, what is God telling them to do? I want you to take a jar full of it. I want you to put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. What's significant about the Ark of the Covenant? Who dwells there? The glory of God. Now, it does not rot. It does not die. In the presence of God, this stuff lives forever. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus is going to compare himself to manna. He's going to say, I am the bread that came down from heaven. How is Jesus like the manna? New every morning. You know, you could, you could have messed up the day before, and guess what? God's mercy is still there. He still provides. He's still there for you in the morning. It's enough. He's enough. It comes from heaven. Who's, who's it available to? Anyone who will eat. You know, one of the things that Christianity gets accused of being all the time, Christianity is exclusive. It's true that you cannot get to heaven. You cannot get to the Father. These are Jesus' words. No man comes to the Father but through me, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's exclusive in that sense. But it's one of the few religions in world history that erects zero barriers. It's for the prostitute. It's for the tax collector. It's for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. It's for the male. It's for the female. Like every barrier that's ever existed in all these other religions, like you want to talk about ancient religions, the poor, it's especially for the poor. It tears down barriers with the gospel. So in one sense, like if you're coming, you got to pick it up and eat. But there's no restrictions on who can pick it up and eat. But it's open. It's free. It comes to everybody. 
And so this, when Jesus comes and he does his miracle that's very similar to this, it said, now when Jesus heard this about the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Hmm, why does it clarify that it's a desolate place? The Israelites were in a desert, and now Jesus is taking them to a desolate place. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. They just won't stop. They're constantly walking around, and he always welcomes them. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. There it is again, emphasizing that. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. And Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking up five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing. He broke the bread, gave it to his disciples. What's that sound like? It sounds like the Last Supper. He said a blessing. He broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples. And the disciples then gave them to the crowds. And they ate all and were satisfied. There it is again. And did he say, I want you to show me your, your Jewish credentials? Did he say, I want you to give it only to the men? Don't serve the poor? Or don't serve the Pharisees? Anybody who wants can eat. And so they took up and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, not including the women and children. Why is that significant? Like, so here you get done and there's 12 baskets left over. Why is that significant? Who hasn't eaten yet? The disciples who are delivering the food. So think about this. With such exact precision, he feeds everybody... He's multiplying this, which means he is some, he's a being that creates out of nothing. Who does this remind us of? God. He creates things out of nothing, ex nihilo, and he provides an abundance with no restriction to whoever will eat. And in John 6, so the next day, all the crowds are following, going like, you gave food. Who, we want some, we want some, we want some. And so Jesus gives them this teaching, which they... Many of them don't accept it. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, which by the way, I got to stop there for a moment. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, some of them translate, I tell you the truth. When he says, truly, why, why does he say, I say to you? Like, no kidding. I just saw it come out of your mouth. You don't need to say that. It's like if every, every time I said something up here, I say to you, Jesus did a miracle. Like that seems redundant, right? It's not redundant. What is Jesus doing? Every time in the Old Testament that a prophet came with a message from the Lord, how do they always announce the message from the Lord? Thus says the Lord. What are we to understand when Jesus stands in front of them and says, I say to you, who is he? He's the Lord. And he's claiming that authority every single time he says, I say to you. There's no thus saith the Lord. I am the Lord. I say to you. And when he begins by saying truly, truly, you know, anytime somebody comes up to you and says, all right, I'm going to be honest with you. What's coming out of their mouth next? <laughs> Jesus is saying truly, truly. And we go, what is that about? For just cultural commentary, when you went into a synagogue as a Jew, their job was to evaluate everything you said. And if they agreed with you, they would say, Amen. Amen, right? Amen. I agree. That, that meshes with the scriptures. Jesus, when it says truly, truly, the Greek word there is amen. amen. Some of them translate it that way. Amen, amen, I say to you. What Jesus is saying is, what I'm about to say is I'm not looking for your amen. 
I'm saying it before I speak. It's true. This is not up for debate. This is an absolute with the authority of God's statement. Amen, amen, I say to you. So whatever he says after he says that, not up for debate. Relativistic culture, tough. This is not something he's waiting around on us to go, yeah, I believe that. Amen. No, he comes with the full authority of God, right? Amen, amen. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever, hear that, whoever, it's not exclusive. It's wide open. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. Why can he say that? This infinite being who forever, for the eternity past, has been utterly satisfied in the triune relationship with his God, with his Father, with the Holy Spirit, totally satisfied, will go to a cross and he'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've been drenched in the sin of my people. I have become unacceptable. I am the one who is going to face the wrath so that my people can be accepted. What's another word he cries out from the cross? I thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake, for they shall be satisfied. How do we get to be satisfied? We hunger and thirst for something we don't have. He had it. And he gave it away so that we could say, oh man, I'm satisfied. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Why? Because he hung on a cross for me and said, I thirst. He is so good, so beautiful. And every single one of these miracles is singing the gospel. This book, this Bible, the word of God that was been given to us is so amazing. All of it, cover to cover, is just singing about him. Thanks, Sam. And thank you, friend, for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed what you hear, please subscribe and give us a good rating so that other people can find Out of Water also. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.